From 11FS, I'm David Brewer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you British fintech booms with 2019 set to be a record year for investment. Facebook is fined $5 billion, and SoftBank bets very big in South America. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 341 of Fintech Insider. I'm your host, David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. How's it going? It's good. I feel like I haven't been here for ages. I know. We haven't done one of these together for a while, have no, we? No, it's been a while, um, but I'm very glad to be back. What have you been up to? Uh, well, today, literally running around, and it's too hot to be running around is what I've, got, I've come to, but um, all sorts of exciting things, especially on the research and benchmarking side. Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes open. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Uh, as always, we're not alone, and this week we're joined by some super cool guests making their debuts this week. We have the award-winning Amy Lewin, senior reporter at Sifted. How's it going? It's great, especially after I won my award yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it looks like you guys had fun last night. It was pretty good. It was pretty rowdy. Was it? But what do you expect from do you wanna, British where, where, footballers? Where were you? Do you want to give us a bit of a context? I was at the uh, inaugural FinTech League Awards. So this is a football tournament that eight London FinTechs have been a part of. And I was the reporter that broke the news. <laughs> Hence my award. Wonderful. I mean, there's been some pretty sore-looking heads in the 11FS office today, I'm not going to lie. I've, I wasn't there as well, and I've seen all the pictures, so I'm going to hold on to those for a later date, I think. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, next up, we've got Oliver Prill, who is the CEO of Tyne. How's it going, Oliver? Very good, very good. We're counting the weeks to our 100,000th member. Very cool. I mean, you guys are just racketing up customers. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the small business space is moving at extremely fast pace, and uh, so it's great to be in it. Very cool. Uh, next up, we have James Teodorini. Very good. Yeah. Very good indeed. Nailed it. Uh, European Partnerships Development Manager at Button. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Very well. I actually asked for some advice from a fellow debutante last week, Alistair from TransferWise, and he said, um, just be yourself. And I then relayed that to my girlfriend and my boss, who went, absolutely don't do that. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not do that. So pleasure to be here, but we'll see how it goes. I think your friend was trying to stitch you up there, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's see how this goes. And definitely not making her debut, Megan Kaywood. How's it going, Megan? Great, great. I also was at the awards last night with Amy. Now, she was the reporter who broke the news about the FinTech League, but I will have you all know, I was actually the lead reporter this season um, for the FinTech League. It was a really big role. It was a big honor. So I presented goal of the season to Ryan New at Starling Bank. It was um, a real honor to be there. It was quite the event, so... Yeah, still recovering, but it was great. It looked like I've got pictures times. of you as well, just, you know. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah, endless. <laughs> wow. we, as lead reporter, I made sure to be in every photo. So that is documented on Twitter for those of you who uh, follow along. Sarah's definitely using I have photos in a threatening way. Like, uh, <laughs> yes. Okay, fine. Just so we clear that out. <laughs> Mine are all on Twitter already, so one step ahead. <laughs> all right, let's get on with the show. First up, we have a story over on City AM. So this is UK fintech continues to smash records. So British fintech booms as 2019 is set to uh, eclipse pretty much every record that we have to date. So hitting 2.9 billion so far in the first six months of the year. I mean, this is going rather well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's um, the the, the two point the two point nine billion for that's dollars, by the way, of funding in the first six months of the year. Last year, we had three point three billion in total. Um, it does sound good. What's interesting to me is that an awful lot of that money has come from very very few deals. So if you look at uh, Oak North and uh, some of the banks as well, um, have raised huge amounts, mm-hmm. which is, which is good for them and not a problem, but. 
I think in the current climate, I would quite like to be encouraged to see money coming to new companies as well, because it's all very well having these successful companies. They've done very, very well. Um, but if we're not getting any investment into any new ventures, then I have a horrible, horrible fear, which I'm sure won't come to pass, that we'll start stagnating a little and we'll lose that competition that we had. Um, but generally speaking, good news. More money is nearly always good news. In my experience, more money is always good news, yes. But uh, you mean in this context? Well, I mean, in this uh, context, yes. I was thinking about some of the stories you got later on, in which case more money is definitely not good news. But <laughs> Well, before we maybe get into what we thought about this one, we actually managed to talk to Joe Oliver, who is from Octopus Ventures. So let's hear what he said. The UK in particular is benefiting from its historic leadership in financial services and London as one of, if not the, leading global capital market. This, combined with the sheer size of the market, where small niches are worth billions of dollars, means that it's a very attractive investment opportunity, as has been witnessed by the large overall investment amounts. And within this, significant investments, including, for example, $440 million into Oak North and $230 million into Checkout.com. This trend of significant investment amounts and large deals is likely to continue. And whilst the number of deals has declined over the last few quarters, I really wouldn't read too much into this, as in many respects, the disruption of financial services is very much in its infancy. And at Octopus Ventures, we are particularly excited by investment opportunities in the payment infrastructure space, the insurance industry, which lags even the banking industry when it comes to innovation, and capital markets infrastructure, where it is often still possible to get onto a plane and travel halfway around the world and deliver a financial contract in person than it is to send it through the supposed existing electronic infrastructure, evidencing how much disruption is still possible in a market worth trillions of pounds. Cool. So what do we think? I've sort of given my, my, my thoughts. Yeah. Feel free to bat them back at me, anybody. Yeah. No, I'll jump in. I think he makes some good points. So at the one hand, fintech in the UK but globally is an infancy, right? There's still lots of space for new entrants, particularly in his points like in insurtech, right? That's a huge space. But yet at the same time, what we're seeing in the UK is a maturity of the ecosystem. So people like Monzo, Starling, Oak North are now at a size where they can have very large deals coming, coming out. And so we're just seeing more money going into a fewer handful of startups because that that's where we are in the current state of play in the ecosystem. Lots of them now have had really good progress in the UK and are also expanding globally. So we see Monzo and N26 and others now going to the US. And I know that's something we'll touch on a bit later, but I think that's what we're seeing is there are still a lot of opportunities for new fintechs to come up. We are still seeing smaller deals. Yet at the same time, some of the players that have merged over the past few years are just reaching a maturity where they get really big deals. And I think it's quite exciting to see. So hmm. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're done yet, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the retail space... SME space has has kind of done a lot, but there's Mm -hmm. plenty of other different avenues of of banking to kind of go after, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think think that's that's what I would echo. I think fintech is a very broad church, and I think there are certain sub-slivers of it where the maturity, as you say, you know, is is, is being reached, right? Maybe broad consumer plays. In SME, you know, business banking, certainly, the broader horizontal plays, you know, the leaders are clearly emerging. However, there are many, many other subsectors. I think InsureTech was mentioned, uh, uh, you know, that that haven't, you know, even reached, uh, uh, you know, early stage. And I think the other thing to realize, these big players, most of them have some form of platform approach. They call it differently, sometimes marketplaces, sometimes platform. But that means 
product vertical, so people that are very focused on sort of niche propositions, actually have a natural way of dogging onto these these larger players. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I would echo the thing that there is will be much more disruption, and in particular, let's say, in the sectors that have not traditionally uh, got the focus within fintech and, you know, niche sort of product propositions and service propositions that can build onto platforms. But mm. do we think that will happen here? Because in InsureTech, um, which is kind of my, my, my sideline, my, my side hustle, um, we see an awful lot of money, but not very much if it comes to the UK. A lot of it goes to America and places like Germany are doing very well as well. And that's my concern that I was making earlier is that I think that I completely agree with so much more to do, particularly infrastructure. But I don't know if it'll happen here do with the current set of circumstances. I'd be interested to know how many of the those big companies sort of spawn new ones. Like how many of their employees go on to start their mm. own thing, maybe in some of those mm. gaps that they'd be noticing. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definite sort of heritage of that type of thing, isn't there? There's a, I think, who was I saying about the... Uh, they're like Monzo, people from Monzo have gone on There's to start a other things. There's transfer-wise kind of alumni club mm, yeah. starting and, and then like Spotify and all of those. And yeah. Bailey, who we spoke to on, on air the there other week, go. seems to have been, you know, she's moved from company to company to company and now she's set up her own token. Very so. true. Mm-hmm. But like taking your first kind of point, we, we ran the numbers on it this morning and only 15% of that investment came from early stage. So seed, angel, or kind of series A. It's very much going into the hands of kind of those late stage investment. But I think someone used the metaphor last week of the kind of shoal of fish approach Mm -hmm. where you kind of have to your point Oliver that kind of I won't use the term whale but kind of the sort of larger the N26s the Monzos and the Starlings but there's definitely still product opportunity you know we're seeing it in kind of what we do and we're seeing it in those different product verticals where you can kind of attach yourself to a marketplace Mm -hmm. but as you say I'd personally like to see kind of that 15% increase to see whether we're still seeing in a year's time new entrants to the market, but potentially not in that consumer-facing place. The other interesting spin, of course, what would you say, where does the money go? Is although these are UK players, a large number of them have raised it actually for foreign plays. So, you know, you have the Revoluts, the Monzo's gearing up for, you know, let's say a pretty tough battle with N26, and let's Mm -hmm. say in the US you know, the US players are not exactly waiting for them. So I think that, you know, a lot of capital, though raised mm-hmm. in the UK, will go that direction. Yeah. Um, and it's actually interesting how much of that remains uh, remains here and benefits yeah. the UK well, itself. Well, speaking of remaining, what do we reckon Brexit's going to do to this then? Because oh, uh, no, being in no, a situation no, where... No, let's no, no, bring it back, let's bring it back. <laughs> yeah, oh, what a call to make. Um, I, th- I think that... Uh, we will get investment from different places. I think where the money comes into the UK will be different lines. I think that we will be cheap for a very long time because I do not think that the pound is going to recover anytime soon, which will encourage some investment to come in. But in terms of whether the rest of the infrastructure stays in place, the talent, how the regulators catch up, that may well scare a few people off. So it's all very well having a brilliant idea here, but if you can't build it because it's not legal or because we don't know if it's legal, it's like the e-scooter thing, they're actually technically illegal, but nobody's done anything about it. Yeah. Like if you're going to start a company in financial services it's a little bit more complicated than a transport company so but, I think there'll be some I think there'll be some pulling back yeah to be fair so like when I started out my career I was in San Francisco and one of the key things that I learned during that is while there's a massive market in the US for fintech in particular it's actually quite difficult to scale given the state by state fragmentation mm-hmm. given the fact that compared to the UK the regulator here is just very progressive they're enabling competition innovation the reason why you see challenger banks here and not in the US is because they've made it possible for these new tech startups 
startups to get a banking license and compete on equal footing. You just haven't seen that in the U.S. But if you rewind to like, what was it, four or five years ago when Andreessen Horowitz um, invested in TransferWise, I thought it was excellent because Ben Horowitz wrote this blog where he said, last year we declined to invest in TransferWise because as a Silicon Valley investor, we went to mentor our firms. We thought London was too far away. Now we realized we were wrong. And it turns out the UK is just uniquely awesome for fintech. They were the right people. They had the right company. They were getting the right scale. And so it just makes economic sense for Silicon Valley investors to invest in these London startups. Hmm. And so from Barclays' perspective, now that, now that I'm at Big Blue, um, what we've seen also is that same kind of feedback coming from small businesses in our ecosystem is that you can start and scale in the UK, but many of them have these global aspirations. So like today, we, um, we're introducing this Barclays Global Connect program, but really all that's about is hosting these series of events in San Francisco for businesses who want to go there, who want to build a network, who want to understand about fundraising. But I think while we have a uniquely awesome regulator here, um, the challenges that are in the U.S., but the opportunity is still massive on everyone's mind. We're seeing a lot of investors still wanting to kind of make that bridge between the mm. two. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, the market's moved so quickly, isn't it? You know, back when they were fearful of the UK and whether the UK would, you know, it seems like five seconds ago, I remember sort of US friends being like, well, there's no unicorns here. And like, it's week on week on week, there's change, isn't it? So, mm. you know, the market is moving so quickly. And yeah. actually now people are copying here from a regulatory ecosystem perspective. Oh, yeah. For open banking, it's been massive. Everywhere. But the yeah. question is, does the regulator get tangled in Brexit and give up on all that stuff? Because they're, I mean, the, the, the regulator here is brilliant but they already struggle with having enough resource to do everything they want to do. Now, as we have to untangle ourselves and rewrite regulation, is innovation the first thing to die? Because very sadly, innovation and R&D are usually the first thing to get cut. This is my concern. I really hope it doesn't happen. I should point that out. But I, that's what... And in, a, in a funny sort of way, I, I would echo, by the way, everything that was said, but you know, in a funny sort of way, I think, is whether these people that are trying to do global plays, so the Revoluts, the Monzos, the, the Oak Norths, if they're successful of proving that out of the UK can build an international business, because to your thing, I would have said, a few years ago, people would have said there's no unicorn. So the next one will be UK businesses can't internationalize. And if, if UK businesses can prove, fintechs in particular, can prove that they can internationalize or so build global businesses, that will work. At the larger end, at the smaller end, I think it's all about the regulator. And I was the Mansion House uh, speech was really, really encouraged. There are a couple of really exciting things coming on beyond open banking, which I think, by the way, is way overhyped, um, is you know, things like you know, giving non-banks access to the central bank. Things like, you know, portable credit files. I mean, these are really, really things that have the potential to disrupt. And if the UK can prove that outside the European Union, it can actually be much more flexible, mm. it could actually, at the small end, at the domestic end, attract investment. So I think there are a few things that need to come right. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, um, I actually look actually quite positively at it. Mm. All right, I'm going to try and not talk about Brexit again for the rest of it, but let's uh, see how that goes on. All right, moving on to uh, story number two. So this is over on Business Insider, your old gaff, Sarah. Yeah. Um, uh, which is uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is looking for its next acquisition. So J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, so looking at hunting for the bank's next acquisition. Uh, and we've got a bit of a hunch that they're looking at a U.S. neobank in that uh, sort of uh, frame, which is... I mean, an interesting thing, given what they've just killed yeah. off with Finn. I mean, so Jamie Dimon said he wants to do one more big one before he's done. 
Um, which sounds very Jamie Diamond. <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a man who wouldn't. Anyway, did I did I tell you that I we went to you know when we went to New York recently? I got wait, pop- what are you going to say that we're being acquired by? No, no, I, 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 yeah, yeah. This is the announcement, guys. No, exactly. Uh, the story is out. Yeah, yeah the story is out. No, I, I got I got told off for sitting in his chair in reception. I've heard that from someone David. else. Too. Yeah. Yeah, you're what do you think he was thrown? I mean, it was behind some like rope, like rope, but I was tired, so I just went like moved the rope and sat down, and then got told off for sitting in his chair, which was interesting. But wow. Anyway, well, diversion. CEO culture aside, I know. Um, it's business side of things, Neobank could be their next target to make up for the recent closure of its own all-digital bank, Fin. And the reason they reckon that is because they reckon that Fin was closed because it was too close to Chase's own brand. Now, I disagree with that completely. I think that Fin was... A, I mean, I'm just putting it out there. I called it six months before Fin closed. I said it was never going to work. And I published it on Forbes and the date's on the, the piece so you can <laughs> yeah. see it. Facts. Um, I just... I. Um, um, I can't quite see it because if you, if you talk to um, Tom Blomfeld in the UK, he says that if they were to be acquired, that's a failure. And I've spoken to Chris Britt, who runs Chime, which is one of the biggest sort of neobanks out there. And I, I think he would feel the same. I think that's not what he wants. At the same time, you look at what BBVA did with Simple and that still hasn't come right. Mm-hmm. So, and I also can't see that being where Chase plays next. I just doesn't, doesn't feel quite right for their current strategy. It feels like it has to be something more slightly infrastructure-based. You know, they've done so much work on blockchain and, and, and all that kind of thing. It feels like mm-hmm. it's going to be something more in the back that they can maybe white-label and make some more money out of, yeah. I think. Well, and to be fair, this conflicts a little bit with a TechCrunch article that Steve O'Hear wrote about J.P. Morgan um, working on a secretive digital banking project based out of London. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. Obviously, they face some challenges in the U.S. with Finn. They still understand that this is a really big opportunity. London is the capital of fintech, lots of talent, great decision, brilliant Jamie, go for it. Well, I'm copying Goldman Sachs yeah. and that, because oh, Marcus yeah. came here and did so well, so why not try Absolutely. that? Yeah, yeah, and so I think it just makes sense, but I can't imagine that they would want to build a new digital bank out of London and acquire one, so I feel like one of the two things has to be true. I don't know which it is, but it'll, it'll be really interesting to see it play out. I think I'm, they're a big bank, though, and they really want to stay in the game, and they know digital's the future. They have to do something, so mm. either build it or buy it, but make a move. And I'd like to get your opinion on this, Megan, to be fair, because... I don't know if, like, and anecdotally, I've kind of seen an American-UK difference to kind of build it versus buy it. So, you know, obviously Jamie Dimon coming out and saying, I'd love to buy one. This is great. But, like, J.P. Morgan's digital offerings have, like, 32 million customers across it. They might not be the best thing in the world, but they've kind of still got that expertise. You know, you look at Amex as well. They just go, Lounge Buddy, we're going to buy that. Resi, we're going to buy that. Mezzi, we're going to buy that. We don't see, well, and I personally haven't seen that acquisition from British banks who, like, and I'm thinking about people like Halifax going, cool, we've just done contactless cards, guys. It's not like, let's go and buy someone who kind of has that expertise. So I don't know what your opinion is of American banks being, in my opinion, more likely to go and say, these guys look like experts, let's buy something against people... I mean, well, Americans yeah. definitely just like to buy things, don't they? <laughs> we love buying stuff. That's so true. Um, no, I think there's two things. So one, in the UK, when you had the regulator that came out with Option B, which reduced the capital requirements for these new entrants to come to market, get the full banking license, compete on equal footing, you have to realize that they were built by people who are really intrinsically motivated to make financial services better. They didn't really want to be bought. So as many of them said, I think Tom Blomfield was clearly saying, like, if we're bought, that's a failure. And so I think in the UK, you uniquely had this... Um, 
some kind of intrinsic interest around motivation and or competition innovation. In the U.S., on the other hand, the regulator has not been releasing licenses to these new fintechs. And so Chime and Varo and all these other new entrances are based on Bank Corp. They have to have this bank sponsor model. So actually, because they aren't able to operate on equal footing with the big banks, the challenges that they face around scale that aren't seen in the U.K. might lead them to saying, like, actually, maybe we would be cool with being acquired. But Yeah, you say around scale, but Chime hit 2 million mm-hmm. customers before Monzo had even hit one. Okay, yeah, but they started before them, and they're in the U.S. So the population yeah. of the U.K. versus the U.S., it's like, what, 48 million adults here versus, like, 270 in the U.S.? Yeah. So when you look at it relatively, they are growing, but not at the same rate as the U.K. challengers, given their age and, and size of market. Yeah. yeah, I still think that I still think that having spoken to Chris from Chime, I disagree with you, because I think he's a very similar mindset to Tom Blomfeld. I yeah. think he's like, this is my baby, and I will raise it until I die. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. So I've met him, and I think he's awesome. I think he's totally switched on. I obviously love what they're doing, but I just think, so Chime, for example, makes a lot of money off of interchange, right? And that works in the U.S., and it works under their capital thresholds. But, like, to get to the size of J.P. Morgan, that still to be your business model obviously wouldn't work. So it's a time-constrained type of strategy, whereas the U.K. challenger banks, they can accept deposits, they can lend it out, they can make money on the net interest margin, they can do all these things that traditional banks do in addition to interchange and treasury income and blah, blah, blah. So I think that while it's good, I still don't think that the U.K. or the, sorry, the U.S. entrants have had the same advantages as the U.K. entrants have, and that might lead, I don't know, to a different appetite versus well, building. Yeah, I think the other thing to, to sort of add to, to your question about the U.K. banks buying, I think it's just a pure mathematics between the valuations of these big players in the U.K. and the valuation of the banks. I mean, compare maybe not Barclays, but let's compare, you know, one of the large big UK banks with, you know, their size and just put them in, in relation. I think for, for a UK bank to swallow a really large, high-valued fintech mm. would be, you know, a much more material capital commitment than to a JP Morgan, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, taking that bet. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on why people do it, isn't it? You know, I think um, you know, the thing that I think most of us were thinking Finn was, was essentially the, the life raft to create a... Uh, technology-focused infrastructure that actually could sustain the big bank. Um, and then if that didn't turn out to be that, maybe that's why they killed it. Yeah. Um, but, but if they, if you know, my money, and, you know, you're a place, Megan, but I actually said somebody will buy Starling, I think, in the next, I think I said it six months ago, so like two in the next two and a half years. My money was on HSBC, but, I mean, JP Morgan would be a good, a good chance. as a failure. Do but you the, think that would then be seen as a failure? Is that a uniquely Tom thing? Is it a uniquely founder-led well, the, the, thing? The point is there's a lot of US neobanks that have been bought already. Mm. So mm. We, that we've seen an awful lot of that. Some yeah. have been swallowed by other companies. So, so far I bought um, a, a bank. A, a bank. I'm that inverted commas because, again, <laughs> as Megan correctly says, they're not actually a bank in terms of the licensing. But that general ledger model where you sit on top of somebody else has worked incredibly well for them out there. Um, and I, I agree with Oliver's point about, like, in the UK, it's a different, you know, in terms of the size that they're going to make the acquisition. But to go back to the point about infrastructure, JP Morgan has spent so much... I mean, what JP Morgan is doing with open APIs outside of open banking is incredible. So if they put all that money into infrastructure and building these connections and building out their own kind of stuff on the back end, then yeah, okay, they could they could buy a bank, but they're doing so much work there to build it, yeah. buying a new one and integrating it. I mean, Goldman, you know, Goldman Sachs, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Wells, Bank of America, like these guys are they are spending so much money on and externalizing APIs, but equally they've got a legacy infrastructure that's costing them six, seven billion a year just to run. Except Goldman's built a new infrastructure for Marcus, and they have succeeded with that. So they built Marcus from the ground up and it sits separately and that's the only one I can think of that succeeded like that it has yeah it, it, that, that definitely has so Bo did a 
very good job making that happen. But it was, I think they are the weird edge case, like a really <laughs> yeah. odd edge so, case. So, so the, the markers have succeeded, whereas Greenhouse, I haven't heard of. Greenhouse is yeah, Wells Fargo's Fargo, version, yeah. and I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and I think this say, is what you need to ask, right? Yeah. I mean, in addition to the valuation, why are you buying something as a bank, right? So I think you can either do an infrastructure play, mm. where you say I buy great technology, uh, you could buy a customer base, so I just fast forward, right, maybe a couple of years, because that's most most of the problem, why most of these other things play, uh, fail with banks is they just don't want to wait for two to three years to get to the two million customers. Mm-hmm. So I think they, there's always like, what are, what are you looking for? And I think if we were to search, search for what, um, you know, JP Morgan would look at next, I mean, I would actually ask, you know, what are they actually after, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't seem to me like two million customers would really, for them, move the needle much, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably infrastructure or uh, you know yes. some broader play that they can apply. Yeah, well, like the two advantages that you have that you're going for with this is lower cost base and speed to market, right? So everyone knows that digital is the future. When you look at the stats of mobile usage for banking, um, City AM had come out with this good article where they were talking about that overtaking branch usage by 2021, and like no one was surprised. Like obviously that's the trend, so everyone knows they need to invest. But your two options are you either build it yourself or you buy someone. And in J.P. Morgan's case, what I thought was quite fascinating with Finn is it was still built on top of their legacy architecture. So then you lose the two advantages of lower cost base and speed. So it's just the same high cost with the same slow the kind of same slowness that you mm. had before, it's not really moving it's the needle. It's branding, right? It's, it's branding. Yeah, yeah and so branding like branding. with emojis, actually. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was literally branding with emojis. So it was like starting with the right idea, but I think to really execute on the strategy that they're looking for and to get the benefits that they want, they need to make one of those decisions, which is either in line with the TechCrunch article, build out this you know, secretive core platform out of London or by someone, but with this idea that's really investing in tech as a strategy. Mm. I, I sort of hope it's both. You know, like uh, we, we sort of yeah. talk a lot about, I mean, banks have been in this world where they just put all their eggs in one basket. So actually when you're such a huge organization like like these guys, actually being in a situation where you're, uh, you know, it's just makes sense to spread bet, doesn't yeah. it really? Like yeah. place multiple bets increases your opportunity really. But yeah, absolutely. To, to ask a CEO question to, to a CEO and Apologies, putting you on the spot here. Oliver. Would would you see it as a failure if an incumbent came in and bought Tide? So we're not really up for sale. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, I'll put my checkbook. Away. <laughs> <laughs> Your checkbook may be large, but look, in the end, we you know. So first, I think there are two sort of questions, right? Who owns Tide, and what is their their objective, and then you know what does the management team think? So I think as far as the investors are going, we've got financial investors, and I'm sure they would consider any anything that's sort of you know, gives them the adequate returns. As far as the management team is concerned, I think the more important question is when we're saying, like, what would the acquirer look to do with it, right? So if it was a dead-end game, right, of, you know, a third-rate bank with zero strategy trying to integrate this into their core business, you know, and dying a slow death, people probably wouldn't be excited. I think you said some exciting things that JP Morgan may think of buying something and then pushing massively, you know, um, customers into that. I think that can actually be quite a motivating thing especially if the bank gets the message that, you, you know, you said, like, keep them independent, give them low-cost base, you know, really leverage this new asset. So I think management teams, at least, more, you know, let's say people have been around the block, probably would look at it more holistically. Mm-hmm. I think the worst-case scenario from every perspective would be a big bank acquiring a large fintech and then exposing it to slow death, right? I mean, that that is probably the worst thing you can do for everyone mm. involved. But that's what usually happens, right? That's With true, acquisitions, yeah. that's like the most common path. Um, I mean, and this is and this is the thing is actually when I mean we we shouldn't really sort of forget big banks have been created through mergers and acquisitions over the last 
you know, 200 years, right? So this is sort of the playbook. It's, it's just sort of coming back to why, to your point, why are people buying these? If you're, if you're buying it because this small thing has got a culture and a tech stack that you can't achieve with having loads and loads of people, then you're probably going to smash it up really, really quickly and you need to avoid doing that. If you're doing it for customers, then that doesn't make any sense. I think it, it depends a little bit if you look at, I think banks, you can classify to do it. They're those that have monolithic brands, right? So, you know, those organizations generally find it very, very hard to have autonomous units internally. Mm-hmm. And there are those banks, I don't want to mention any, but you can imagine which brands, that are actually used Go to on. running, that, that are actually managing multi-brand businesses. And I think if you're used to multi-brand business, it becomes very simple, right? Because you, you have learned, the organization has learned to deal with a degree of it. So mm-hmm. that's why, yes, there are, uh, and of course, if you buy, there will need to be some synergies. I agree with you, they're probably not on the cost side, at least not from the fintechs. It's probably more about exposing customers to it, you know, making sure you, you ratchet up their positions. So I think there can be interesting models. Having said that, I don't think where we are today, neither in the US nor in the UK, you know, have the banks gone far enough down the road to, to, to think about these things, to really create value-added deals. That may come at some stage, and hopefully someone will be the first one and show the way or how to not to do it. Uh, but I think we are a little bit away from that actually happening. Well, we will see what happens next, but definitely my advice is don't sit in his seat. <laughs> All right. Uh, over on BBC News, we have Facebook fined $5 billion for Cambridge Analytica. Damn, that's a lot of money. Like uh, we... That's what I was saying. More money can be bad, bad news. <laughs> yeah, when it's a fine, more money is definitely a bad news. So uh, the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating allegations that Cambridge Analytica improperly obtained the data of up to 87 million Facebook users. Um, so they've now decided... So the interesting thing on this was $5 billion fine was approved by the FTC in a 3-2 vote, with the Republicans voting in favour and the Democrats voting opposed. So it's good to see that they were doing it off the basis of facts and not any political... Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think Facebook will be quite relieved because it's only $5 billion, which sounds silly. But from what I understand, if the Democrats had their way, it would be a hell of a lot more serious and it would be something that involved and impacted their business model. It would be, you can no longer do any of these seven things. We're going to write a piece of legislation that makes it legal. I know it isn't that simple, but I think... Um, what you see there is the two parties' um, approach and attitudes to data and privacy. Um, I'm not an American political expert, um, but yeah, I think I think five. My, my reaction to that is that five billion to Facebook is like, well, thank God it's only money. Thank uh, God uh, it's not. A, you can't operate anymore. I mean, bad time to start a currency when you've just been fined five billion <laughs> well, for uh, a yeah. data breach. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's a lot of money, right? Like it's a quarter of their profits or something for the year, but they, they've allocated that money for quite a long time. This has clearly been kind of in the pipeline. You know, you look at obviously British Airways last week, was that 183 million, I think, was their fine. Like it's a lot of money, but this stuff doesn't actually change until consumer backlash kicks in. Or like, until you're told you can't do that, you're going to stop. So it comes from two places, right? Elizabeth Warren, kind of Democratic nominee, has come out and said, I'm going to break up big tech, which is probably more scary to Facebook than it is a $5 billion fine. I'd say the other side of that is, and again, use the BA example, right? I fly BA. I haven't stopped flying BA since the data breach. It hasn't really changed my mind. I'd love to know how many people have, because I imagine it's pretty small. Mm. How many people have stopped using Facebook because of it? Probably a few, because it's 
bit rubbish now, but yeah. like, I mean, I mean, not because your, of that. Your so. date is out there now, mate. There's no point changing well, now. Well, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The, 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 the sample of one is my mother, who has stopped using Facebook because of it, but hmm. she doesn't understand that WhatsApp, which she's addicted to, is part of the Facebook group. Mm. So I think there might be a few people like people that. moving from Facebook yeah. to Insta going, no, yeah. no, no. Like, oh, you're just putting more photos <laughs> on. This is worse. <laughs> it's like FaceApp, right? It's kind of the thing that's coming out today with uh, all the, it's definitely not Russian bots, but like how much data are you willing to give up for... Wait, looking what? a bit older. Face app is not- sending all of our data to Russia. So basically, the, <laughs> Great. The, the T's and C's of FaceApp are ridiculous. Someone dug into them and shared them around the office today. It was basically like, you grant a completely kind of royalty-free, worldwide license for your face or image to be used in any material, any study that we're doing whatsoever. Wow. And they're be- like... At least it's a really old picture of me. Yeah, exactly. So like now you're fine. 40 years with... <laughs> It's going to kick in. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> just reflecting back on Facebook, I mean, there's sort of two things that have hit me, right, reading all this debate. I think one is this whole notion of business models built on surveillance capital, I think, needs a broader public debate because I think there is clearly some benefit from it. We all benefit from data being used in a certain way, but, there, you know, we all have limits. And I don't think the society has had that debate yet where exactly that starts and ends. I think there's some regulatory constraints in which Facebook clearly breached. But beyond that, there's just a, f- a feeling of discomfort with what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's number one. Number two is actually quite interesting that, you know, the increasing competition between the Chinese fintech giants and the U.S. big tech. So if you want Chinese big tech versus U.S. T- uh, big tech, And there is, of course, a question if you are a regulator in a particular country and you try to limit your own big tech, you know, what does it do for this sort of, you know, world politics and the the game there? And my suspicion is one of the reasons why the clampdown has not been much harder is the notion that uh, in the U.S. feel, many in the U.S. feel the U.S. needs to actually foster these large big tech t- uh, 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 giants to make sure, you know, they can compete with China down the road. Mm. Super interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely had to consider that angle on it. Mm. All right, uh, that's probably all we've got time for in this first part. We'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart. This economy is... We need to get down to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly the pressure is beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, If you didn't know, we're hiring. So check out 11fs.com forward slash careers to find your perfect, perfect job. I mean, we have a lot of fun, Sarah, right? We do. We do have an awful lot of fun. And I, I, I met Will I Am this week. <laughs> I met Will I Am. This is my job this week. That was weird. 
I, I, every so often, like about every three hours or so, I remember it and just blurt it out. It's really weird. What I'm going to say is that we have different definitions of fun and we both have fun, which is a really good thing because there is diversity of fun in the office. Uh, I mean, everybody has their preference, right? <laughs> All right, let's get on with the show. So next up, we have a story over on TechCrunch. So this is SoftBank are betting big on South America. So FinTech in LATAM continues to grow big dollars. I'm not sure that's great English, but let's go with it. Uh, as SoftBank invests $231 million in Creditas. This is pretty impressive. Like this, I can't believe how much money is uh, pretty much pouring down there right now. So I, I will say that it actually says draw big dollars. That was you skim reading. It was it was correct English. To, to draw big dollars. Yeah, continues to draw big dollars. I've been editing today. I like totally on it. Is that good English? Yeah, yeah it's perfectly correct grammar. Me draw big dollars. <laughs> that, I got, we'll give you. We'll, we'll talk about this later. Yeah, this is definitely one of those ones where when yeah. you're a journalist, you can get really, really into okay. the kind of let's, like. Let's, is that quite right? Would we phrase it like uh, this? Let's, let's, let's totally let's, show. I'll, I'll be honest. Not my strong point. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, what's really interesting to me is it's not just Latin America, it's Brazil. Uh, Brazil is um, attracting huge, huge amounts of money. Um, that's for a couple of reasons. One is that um, it's got a huge population and a largely underserved population, but the Brazilian government um, did something recently whereby they allowed you to lend money. Basically, they made it easier for fintechs to lend money, which is really good because um, credit has been almost totally inaccessible in Brazil. Like, the average overdraft costs you $300 a year. That's just, like, the very small part of it. Brazil has a hugely, hugely oligopic? Oligopolil? Okay, God, no, that's me. I'm doing it. Um, (laughs) There's only a few banks. They basically run stuff. And the government has historically, and I'm not saying currently, historically taken a lot of money from those banks to do the things the banks want them to do, which has hindered competition. But the current government has made a huge amount of changes. It's becoming much, much easier to start a company. It's becoming much, much easier to make money out of a company. And that's why SoftBank, who's ever got a brilliant nose for a deal, is going in there hard. Yeah. Mm. Um, New Bank, who's over there, is doing really, really well as well. They're a challenger bank. But I think it's Tencent who's their biggest investor. So China's looking that way as well, to go back to Oliver's point earlier, like China... The Americans, the Japanese. Yeah. Mm. No, I was about to mention them as well because you have new banks entered and they've reached valuations of around like four billion. And then I was reading an article earlier on N26, so they've just launched in the US, but their new uh, foray is going to be into Brazil. And their CEO was um, quoted as saying that Brazil is one of the most attractive and most confusing retail banking markets. Um, but it's a massive opportunity. So I think it, I mean, it makes sense. It's you know kind of new to the space of allowing new entrants. There's one there that's clearly successful. It's kind of like a ripe opportunity. So. I I remember interviewing Tom Bromfield years ago and Newbank was like one of the inspirations yeah. for Monzo. So that's quite interesting. Hmm. I think it's interesting that the word that you used is underserved. You know, if you look at LATAM, like, and, and actually it's fantastic that in Brazil, you know, the government are making it easier for people to access credit, for example. But that's because traditionally the financial infrastructure has been so bad. Mm. Like, I think I was reading a study, it was like up to 45% of Latin American adults can't get a bank account because it's so difficult to mm-hmm. do so. So... You know, there's obviously an aspirational middle class within, and again, hugely generalizing, Latin Latin America is a lot of different places, but actually it's the underbanked and the underserved that I think is the huge opportunity there. And I also think within, you know, within looking slightly north within America as well, you know, not trying to take it off topic, but for N26, there are still people getting paid by check and with no access to credit. That's just even more magnified. So if you can get people easy access to credit, you know, there's prevalent mobile phone use down there. So it it makes life a lot easier for people. Brazil is almost the 
the one of the so you've got the, they're called the BRICS, aren't they? Is it mm. BRICS, Br- Brazil, Russia, uh, India, Indeed. and China? And Brazil is actually the only one of those countries that I would say hasn't had a huge technology boom. There are a lot of technology companies there, and I wouldn't take away from what New Bank has successfully done. But if you look at the other three in that list. As they've industrialized, as they've started making huge amounts of money, as they're developing middle classes with money to spend and wanting to do it, you know, in the easiest way possible, their technology and their inf- uh, financial services infrastructure, whether that's like shadow infrastructure or, or legal infrastructure, has kept up. But Brazil, on the other hand, I remember speaking to the guys at Newbank and they were saying, oh, we've got this brilliant way of paying your bills. It involves a piece of paper and going into a post office and getting somebody to stamp the piece of paper. And then you scan the stamp on your phone and that's how you pay the bill. And oh, I'm like, it's 1976. Sorry, yeah. what? So they do use the phone, but in order to use the phone, you have to have got the piece of paper filled in, had a stamp. I can't quite remember what it was, but it was, it is, as you say, workarounds. There's an awful lot of workarounds. And, and part of that is to do with actual infrastructure on the ground. So yes, everybody's got a phone, but necessarily have electricity to charge it, but necessarily have a way of topping it up. Mm. Um, but I'm hugely excited about what's going to happen down I read there. an article that said, like, there's huge mobile usage there yeah. and a really young population and really high usage of apps. So that so weren't we there? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Let's yeah. go now. <laughs> oh, I fancy that. Brazil, yeah. can we add that to the list? Yeah. I mean, more warm countries building banks in would be great for me. Yeah, so. exciting. But I think it's super exciting because, like, what we've seen is that the digital revolution is now coming to banking. It's the headline that everyone loves. You saw, like, the, the iconic Economist article and then the Wall Street Journal. But everyone's coming out with these articles. It's like, why? is the digital revolution that's affected every other industry just now in banking. But there's like a huge amount of reason to see that for financial services, they're hugely um, emotional, anxiety-inducing. They're often difficult, these things where you have to like fax things, like literally go in person to sign up for things, um, is very dated compared to all these other industries that have been transformed by technology. And so now, whenever you can just do very simple things, like make account opening easy, make making payments easy, make saving money easy, it really helps people live better financial lives. And as you do that, then you increase their ability to pursue other opportunities. It's a huge benefit for the economy, increases investment, increases small business growth. There's so many positives for it. So I think that we've now seen it like certain areas like in the UK probably the most advanced but I think there's still a massive opportunity in the US obviously big opportunity in Latin America particularly Brazil apparently Um, but it's super exciting because it's all about improving people's lives I I think to your point it's like it's been good here but there's almost no people so like Mm -hmm. now now let's take it to where all the people are would be good the young people as well is a very uh, salient point from Amy like we have some people here but we're getting older and older and older guys if if (laughs) Brazil hasn't a huge uh, huge population of younger people then uh, why not go there (laughs) they'll be around (laughs) <laughs> Discovery Bank made a bit of a hash of it when they started in their digital offering in South Africa. But again, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, where again, there's increased mm. penetration of mobile devices, mm-hmm. that kind of aspirational young middle class coming up. But again, there's still that underserved population. Like, it's kind of the where's next. And a good, it's warm there as well, which is great. Yeah. So, uh, you know. I mean, do South Africa. I mean, I was talking to, um, talking to a chap who's trying to start a, um, a neobank in uh, Egypt. And it's like only 10% of the population actually have a, are banked in any way, shape or form. And so it's like, like you say, that we're just tip of the tip of the iceberg right yeah, now in absolutely. terms of uh, what, what's actually going to be done, which yeah. is, I mean, it's really exciting, yeah. isn't it? So. Customers are disappointed. Technology is changing it. Huge opportunity. Lots of people need to evolve. New entrants can come in. What could be more exciting than that? So. 
I, I feel like we should end there. Like, so, <laughs> like, yeah. we're, we're, all like, going, we're all going to say, is, is Copacabana? Is yeah. that the one in Brazil? <laughs> well, you can find us there with pina coladas. All right, let's not do that just yet. Let's move on to the next story. So over on the uh, Wall Street Journal, we have Button is a hit with the investors. So Startup Button rides mobile commerce growth to new financing. Uh, they also do really good lip seal as well, as I've got in my pocket. Some but, branded uh, lip balm for uh, you, yeah. I mean, if only we had somebody here to talk about this. James, <laughs> tell us a little bit more. Yeah, it's uh, super exciting. So we've, we've just raised our Series C, which is $30 million on a valuation of $200 million plus. And it's great working at Button, but it kind of further validates, you know, our mission that we set out to do kind of four or five years ago, which is mobile commerce is really, really good. Um, mobile commerce is growing year on year and essentially what we've we found ourselves in is in a position where we can now continue to grow and we can continue to build amazing products and where they seem to be fitting in really really well where there's a need it is within fintech so can you tell us what you do because i have it's i have probably a good yeah. start isn't it yeah so, so we essentially enable and as my uh, as my nine-year-old niece goes it's apps within apps right. um so we essentially have integrations with the world's biggest mobile commerce players so uber walmart uh, eBay, Groupon, etc., and we allow mobile-first organizations to surface those. So, for example, if you're in Samsung Pay, you want to get an Uber and you want to get cash back when you do it, we kind of enable that linkage, and it's not really been done before. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing with, with fintechs especially is they have amazing digital propositions. They have kind of peer, like personal financial management tools, amazing UI, but they're looking for new products to build value to customers. And essentially what we're saying is, well, with an integration with Button, you can then surface rewards from a whole host of companies that we've spent four and a half years building integrations with. So adding value to the customer by saying, cool, get cash back directly into your account or whatever it may be. But also allowing you know, fintechs to acquire new customers. They have really engaged customers as well, but kind of deepening that engagement and you know, we touched on this at the top of the show, but at some point, you know, there's ancillary revenue that has to be, uh, you know, when you're raising a load of money, where is the kind of revenue coming from? So super exciting. Is, is this what, when I was at Business Insider, they used to call deep linking? This is what we call deep yes. linking. You've <laughs> absolutely smashed yes, it. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's the way you do it. It's a bit gonna... cooler than deep linking, right? Oh, you have some, like, <laughs> I mean, they do deep linking, but, like, you do, like, a few different, I don't want to, like, give away your secrets. Yeah, like, we, we've got some patents on deep linking. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, like, don't stop talking. I know. Don't worry to cut this out. No, no, no. We've got, like, patents on deep linking. You know, we, we do some really, really cool stuff that kind of really increases conversion engagement within people's apps. And, you know, we've had great success in the U.S. We're we're a New York-based company. I look after fintech in the UK. We kind of run rewards for the likes of Samsung Pay, for example. And I promised them I'd give them a shout-out, but either by the time this goes out or later next week, we'll be powering Clio's rewards platform. Mm-hmm. And they're doing some really cool stuff around that. Like, can I afford this? Like, yeah, you can. And did you know you can get X amount cash back? So super exciting times for us kind of watch this space. And Very it's cool. sort of almost like a, a new way of going back to that platformification, which I hate as a word, mm. and, and Amy's looking at me, she's like, <laughs> oh, I'm so disappointed in you. Um, but that platform idea, it's, it's a different version or a different model of a platform. It's a marketplace model yeah. again, right? Like, you can go out and kind of build all these relationships and spend pretty much years going, cool, let's do a deal with Uber, Walmart, eBay, or you can kind of plug into Button and you kind of have that available for all of your yeah. users straight off the bat. Yeah. As and- you expand, which kind countries do people kind of love rewards in and where do people not because I was speaking to N26 about expanding to the US and they were like people love their rewards (laughs) the US is huge right so we've been speaking to the guys kind of the usual suspects as you expect as you kind of you know it's been the big thing what do you have to do to win in the US 
rewards are table stakes. Like everyone in the US that I know has a Chase Sapphire card because they don't really know why, but it's got amazing rewards. God, I actually have that card. And so now yeah. it's like <laughs> so now that you mention it, like, oh, you're so it's predictable. Yeah. It's um, because it's metal. <laughs> France is pretty big as well. And, and I was going to say weirdly, not weirdly at all, but APAC. So Indonesia, huge, yeah, huge for that kind of stuff. So US mainly, but like Europe and APAC are huge growth markets. Hence, you know, us having an office in Shoreditch, like every self-respecting arm of a US uh, startup. Yeah, yeah. No, but what I love about Button is it's that marketplace play and it's connecting these two different players in the market. But like what you guys have done with Deep Leaking and how you enable customers to connect between the two, but in a really quite seamless way. Um, I think the layer that you added there without going into too much detail is really quite impressive and is what customers are beginning to expect. Because now we want things to be seamless, frictionless. It's just, it just happens with like one touch. Um, the bar is just that high. And I think bringing that into this particular area in a mobile focused way is really cool. Yeah. Look down in East, as our CEO, Mike Giacconi, always says, look at your phone and look at what China are doing. And this is kind of where, yeah. where we came from, essentially. So, Absolutely. yeah, exciting times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look to the East for inspiration with platforms. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, if you want to hear more from the Button CEO, you can check out last week's interview on Fintech Insider. So uh, go back to episode 338 and check that one out. All right, over on Finextra now, we have a story which is facial recognition underground down under, which was way harder to say than I expected it to be. What's going on down under then? What, me? You're looking at me like I might know something about Australia. I mean, you're pretty much the correspondent now for Australia, so like I presume you know everything about everything down there. Um, yeah, so this is really funny. So basically... The transport minister came out and said, like, in a few years, we want people to be able to uh, walk into, they, they have an underground, like, the metro and an underground, et cetera, et cetera. So the, actually, ferries as well. Ferries in Sydney, yes, they're so super good. cool. So good. Really good way to get Okay, you're just getting excited now. Yeah, sorry. What about I'm the taking the ferry. They're that so cool. Good. I'm excited. Yeah, okay, everybody yeah. focus. <laughs> <laughs> but the ferries. <laughs> no, come on. Focus, um, people. But the, but the way you... Um, the way you ferries in Sydney, they're ships. The way, <laughs> the way you pay right now is, um, it's, it's called an Opal card. Just sidebar, Opal... Oyster, octopus, why are all car transport cards? Mm. An interesting pattern. Pattern. No. Um, but you cannot, you can use an Opal card, but you can't use your phone or, con, or con, uh, contactless device. And the transport minister was super excited and he said, you know, we're going to skip all of that. We're just going to go straight into like you come in and you scan your face and we'll just let you in if you've opted in. If you haven't opted in, we'll just use the Opal card. That's where we want to be. That's our vision. And straight away out of the gate, his political opponent, uh, opposition came out and said, no, 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 no. That's a terrible idea because how can you opt out because you'll be scanning everybody's face? So facial recognition uh, has been tried in a Qantas, on Qantas, which is like the biggest, uh, the biggest airline in Australia. Um, they've been trying it for uh, a, this. They have an energy plan basically, which is to do with like if you get solar energy, you get rebates. They were trying to use it for that. So facial recognition has had this huge kind of uh, media boost in Australia at exactly the same time as they're trying to pass this data legislation, which is they didn't they didn't want to do open banking. They want better than having open data, and so they want to be able to open you to be able to open up your banking data, your utilities data. So that's your, your gas and electric and also your telco data. Um, and it's going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards in the parliament because they have this huge paranoia about data usage. So what the original legislation was has been stripped back and stripped back and stripped back. But basically the story is that Australia's one politician got really excited about new technology and the other politician like cut him off at the knees. Um, the interesting sidebar is that Google Pay and Apple Pay, they don't use so much because... The big banks stopped Apple Pay coming to Australia for years and years and years. They've finally given in. Google Pay's been there since February last year. 
but Android phones are not that widely used. Yeah. Um, they're, they're huge, huge Apple market. And talking about people, they've only got like 23 million or something in the entire country. So um, that was really, really long. No. But um, <laughs> anyway. No, it was fascinating. Um, though. Like, the whole like banking market kind of united together up. against like Apple Pay. Yeah, the but, lobby, yeah. the Australian banking lobby is terrifyingly powerful, even despite a Royal Commission, which took them to pieces and then was quite toothless at its recommendations. Mm. Yeah, well, there are two issues that were quite separate, right? Facial recognition and not opening up, you know, basically, um, you know, the iPhone to competition. I think that was yeah. the main thing. They were less scared about Apple Pay per se. They just wanted to have their own solution, you know, being able to compete on an iPhone, which I think is a fair point, by the way. I think both 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 topics come back to the thing that I think on a, on a few things, there needs to be a societal debate. I mean, the thing about facial recognition, mm. personal data, how is it stored? I mean, should this be left to private companies? Should there be a government utility? Should that be independent that stores things? Well, I think these it. sorts of things. And by the way, if you look at places like India, where the government with the India stack, without boring people here by going into detail of it, the government there took a different approach. They said certain infrastructure layers we are going to provide as a government through independent bodies. Now you can say, how much do I trust these independent bodies that they, you know, that the data isn't shared? But we actually provide this this trusted infrastructure layer, and I think that's one debate that needs uh, needs to be had. I think the other one is clearly with the with the with the iPhone. There are certain practices where certain competition is restricted, and again, this comes in where you go into big tech. Is where can you compete? Interesting there that one that you didn't mention is, of course, the European Union's inquiry into sort of Amazon's marketplaces versus their proprietary, and all of this comes back to the same core issues: how open do big platforms, marketplaces, platforms, whatever your preferred language is, need to be? You know, to, for us to stay competitive as an economy, how do we manage data? You know, what is legitimate and what is and I think these yeah. things in the next couple of years need to be cracked. Right? I th- I think, Otherwise, we will keep coming back to these topics. Okay. I think the the, uh, the iPhone point um, is actually linked to that data point as well in that the way that the Australians are so paranoid about data means that they like to use the individual cards rather than their phones because you can't track a card. You can see where you've been and back, but that's about it. You can't pull any other data off it. It's like in Hong Kong when we saw um, the protests and everybody went back to using the individual disposable pro- uh, transit cards so the government couldn't track them. So rather than using their phone, they're not going to use our phones because they can get pull more data off it. Yeah. So they actually quite like having a piece of plastic. It, it's still facial recognition without value to a certain extent, right? Mm. You know, I was, I was talking to my dad about this ages ago. My dad spent 30 years as a metropolitan police officer. It was like the best thing that ever happened. Was the was facial recognition. Of, well, it was the invention of Oyster cards, right? Because we live in a kind of CCTV society and yes they are obviously a lot less traceable than kind of Apple Pay or Google Pay but you know I get on a bus and I immediately see my face there and I am linked to whatever I just tapped on there so you kind of already have it to a certain extent if you can opt in and I think they might have changed the Apple Pay thing because I used Apple Pay and Monzo to get on a ferry uh, last week in Sydney which was Mm. so cool Um, (laughs) oh so am I wrong then you can use Apple Pay now so you can use Apple Pay well I used Apple Pay with Monzo on the transit in Sydney are you using it on a UK Bank. On a UK so bank. Don't, don't, oh. don't bring up the ferries again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but last time I was there, you couldn't actually use a device. You had to use the plastic yeah, so cards, and that's a step Apple forward. Yeah, you yeah. can use Apple Pay. But again, we already have that linkage between, you know, we live in a surveillance society, potentially you know, more so in London than anywhere else. You can be linked to where you're going at any one time. It's about the implementation, right? 
the thing right. I find scary is just the practicalities. Like, has anyone ever been to one of those passport control oh. things? And then has ever, anyone ever been behind a tourist trying to get through the oyster card barriers? Like, <laughs> this is going to really uh, congest people. I mean, I mean the, inter- the interesting thing somebody pointed out to me about the, the passport barriers is it's like Mechanical Turk. It, there's a dude in the back checking your face against your passport. No. Every, Interestingly. Really? Yeah, it except, is. Except, except in Australia, in Australia no. and a few other countries. It's really true. Yeah. 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 No, you have to come, you know, this isn't the fact check. No, no, no this no, is there's, true. There's, there's, two, there's, two, there's two ways of doing the passport gates. In the UK, we use that system. In Australia, it's different. They use the chip in your passport. Yeah. And as you go up the gates, they scan the chip. And I realized I had a defective passport last time I went to Sydney because I couldn't get through the e-gates. And I was like, this is weird. I go through the e-gates all over Europe. And they were like, no, love, we have a very different system here. We check the chip. We don't use the system you use in Europe. Did they say is... no, love? Because like you would have punched him in the face straight out. No, he didn't say no, love, but it was at the back of a big queue when he was security. And Fine, even yeah, I okay. can like okay. pull, <laughs> pull myself together when I'm like, I want to get into the country. But, but so that, I... that in, in the UK, that is true. It's literally a man in the back yeah. office looking sat the there photo, looking at the photos. That's all it is. It's like, it's a weird, it really is. I, I, really, I, know, I, I remember Web 1.0, you know what we used to call this? It was tennis shoe functionality, right? So you would simulate something as if it was automatic, mm. but it, behind the scenes, someone would actually do something manually. Yeah. But I really can't believe that. So I've been at these e-gates, right? I mean, at least in Europe. I'm not sure about the UK ones. Uh, and that, you know, the speed at which they go through. So, I, Honestly, there's one, yeah. I, I, I promise you, like, everybody I will leave you, and if you do, really Google have data, it. I'm, I'm, I'm data-driven. It's one of our values. Like so many if, you, if you tell me you've got the data, I believe you. But men, it's many just places it's in extremely Europe disappointing, as well. right? So, so Amst, uh, Schiphol Airport, exactly the same. So, so it's literally because one person can do, you know, 20 screens at the same time, basically going, that is that, that. You know, it's, it's basically like Snap, they're oh, playing. Which is bizarre, it's I know. It's but does the picture disappear print. after a while? That's the real question. Well, no. So they <laughs> so they, they actually throw in uh, false ones to make sure that the people. Are, so it's very similar to X-rays. Yeah. yeah. So on an X-ray machine, every like fifty third one or you know randomized, they put in like a gun or something on the on the X-ray machine just to make sure that the person is still still, making, still paying attention. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but with like this broader story of like facial recognition, Sorry, yes. on the one hand, it yeah. does. Well seem done, Megan. Pull us back. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, back yeah, stop on the fairies and then everything. Yeah. Um, but it, it seems creepy offhand, right? Like, you're going to use my facial recognition to track me and let me in places. But on the other hand, as someone who travels a lot, I'm like, yeah, please do. Whatever use it. Yeah. You're already yeah. probably doing it. And I've been to China twice this year and so ended up in conversations with friends who live in Shanghai about this. And the amount of tracking that already occurs yeah. in Asia and the amount of, like, associating that with, like, a social profile score that at least is... Uh, presumed or believed to occur is um, creepy, right? But it's already happening. So in my mind, like, if that's already happening, we already have CCTV, it's already tracking us and linking us to various payment mechanisms, at least I should be able to board my flight faster. You know what I mean? In some places, the UK has actually held up as a terrifying example because I think we have more CCTV cameras in the UK per person than any other country in the world. Yeah, it's That used to include China I have no idea if that's still true but we're held up as like the Australians like you don't want to be like them you're being watched every move but, yeah. but like you say if that is so I'd be fine with that do mm. you know what I mean if it let me get onto the tube or a bus or a taxi or something like quicker and easier you, you know like value say, from it. yeah I'm like fine like have my data like you know you take, have my take face money. anyway yeah. it's, the, it's the value exchange for data right mm. it's yeah, I think yeah. the problem is always where, where people don't understand what the value exchange is. And I think that's always the case with anything to do with data is where people just don't understand what they're giving and what they're getting. Yeah. Well, to be fair, even though we don't get like an immediate return in value for having CCTV cameras everywhere in England, there is a security element to it, right? Because there was this 
horrifying incident a few years ago on one of the bridges where a guy shoved a jogger, do you remember this, mm-hmm. in front of a bus, and thankfully the jogger was okay. But they used CCTV as part of that to identify what it was and what had happened. So in some ways it's reassuring, even though we're not getting that immediate payoff of being able to go you know, get on the tube or bus or whatever faster. But I think that there's a society debate. So, I mean, this is, uh, you know, my brother emigrated to the States, so he's now a naturalized citizen, like you're saying, so U.S. And so we have these, these debates, and he says, look, I don't mind them, you know, NSA scanning me, because, look, I'm not a terrorist, right? What have I got to hide, right? And there's a sort of libertarian view, which says, well, honestly, it doesn't matter, right? As, you know, we should And I think these are sort of the big topics of our time, and in a way, with probably a hidden cost of Brexit, and you know, the, the, you know, the refugee crisis in continental Europe, is that a lot of these societal debates just haven't taken place. And so there is a, there is a, uh, there's a large part of the population left behind that don't understand this, never had that, this debate, and probably in the end feel extremely uncomfortable with it. Um, now, will they adopt anyway? Probably in the end, right, the way it will go is exactly as you say, yeah. right? These services will only be available if you go for this. Yeah. And, um, I, you I know, think, you'll adopt it that way. I think way. My, my thing always comes back to exactly, as you say, it's value exchange. Like, the amount of data I give away for, like, free Wi-Fi in an airport, do you know what I mean? Like, so if I could just get that free Wi-Fi without having to fill out that, all that form and somebody's already took my... You know, d- done it off my face. Brilliant. But that, that's genuinely, I wasn't joking when I said when your dad was in the Met Police, he might say that actually facial recognition scanning is one of the best things that they've ever had because yeah. it makes their lives so much easier. If you think about how, you know, talking about the value out of people and keeping criminals off the streets to Megan's story, rather than that jogger going in who's highly traumatized and highly stressed and trying to give like a, a facial like, fit, fit or, or whatever, whatever it's yeah. called. Yeah. Oh, that's well and good. I just want to get on the tube quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about me, Sarah. All Don't right, me. sorry. Yes. All right, moving on. Uh, and our finally story of the week uh, it's always quite an entertaining one and this one is that uh, so this is over on private eye uh, first time private eye has been referenced on this podcast laura Possibly. Great yeah. <laughs> magazine. Yeah, I mean, it's all reasonably highbrow for me, I'm not going to lie. Um, so gives its own special brand analysis to the UK fintechs and the challenger banks. So this was a very entertaining thing. Do you want to read through this, Sarah? Yeah. Um, yeah? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> is that because you want me to do the reading out loud? I mean, you were tapping on read out in full, so I presumed that was what you wanted to do. <laughs> no, I was just trying to see if it was a link. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, I can read out loud. All right, okay, here we go. Ad nauseum. Typical, you wait ages for a new bank, then three come along at once. No, wait, four. No, five. In an advertising splurge as unexpected as it is unwanted, Britain is suddenly awash with posters pushing new online banks. N26, simplicity, control, is vying with Monzo. This is banking like never before. Starling Bank, banking, but better. Viola Black, move over, Monzo, the new money management tool. Dozens, the new home for your money. Tide, powerful, simple, and helpful. And of course, the Eye's new old friend, Revolut, which stole Spotify's ad campaign wholesale, as I1490 reported. As with all tech startups promising to do things differently, they have all somehow ended up doing the same thing. In this case, that's meant spaffing a large chunk of their venture capital money on an advertising campaign just like non-tech companies used to. The irony is that their message is, we're not like the other banks. Unfortunately, it's a message they've all managed to deliver at the same time and in a very similar fashion. Yeah, that was, that was not too bad, actually. That was good. I, I was going to say, the reading was good, yeah. <laughs> I 
I mean, it's so easy as someone new to the sector to be like, oh, it's inundated with just a bunch of the same. That's like the high level view you get maybe if you just read the ads on the tube. But to be fair, there's actually still quite a bit of diversity. So you have Starling and Monzo who are competing. You have Starling and Tide who are competing on the SME side. But then you have Adam with mortgages, which is quite different. You have um, Tandem with credit cards, which is also quite different. Viola Black, yet to launch, I think, so quite different. Nobody's quite sure what that's going to be as (laughs) far as I understand it. Revolut focusing more on travel. So they each actually have quite a distinct edge. Um, and but really, is there advertising telling like average Joe on the tube that I think that's Private's point? I mean, but if you're gonna, I mean, isn't this the goal of what the regulator wanted? We wanted new competition, we wanted new innovation, we didn't just want a handful of banks, and now we have it, and now we're critiquing it. So, I mean, it's like I, I think uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting given that we were the ones that are quoted. So, I think <laughs> 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 I yeah, read that was there until I got there. So it's very it's nice, so very nice, very nice. Although they didn't get the best strap line, I have to say, you have to write to them. But, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. One is, I think that the promise of fintech is not to do advertising differently. It's actually to, to come up with a different proposition. I think second thing is, anyone that's sort of exposed to our lovely friends at Venture, Venture Capital knows that we are very tightly monitored on unit economics. So I think we should safely assume that, you know, we know what we're doing and we're measuring things, uh, you know, around it. And last but not least, I think as far as Tide is concerned, so I have to bring this in, we open 12 to 14% of all new business current accounts. However, we've only got a brand awareness, prompt a brand awareness of 17%. In November, which is the first time we decided to measure, that's today, we were opening 5 to 6% of new business current accounts with a brand recognition, prompted prompt brand recognition of the relevant sector of 11. And so the point I'm trying to make is fundamentally, a lot of the fintechs at least as far as Tide is concerned, one of the fundamental barriers to growth is actually awareness in the broader population. And therefore, these things make enormous sense. We're definitely measuring it. And of course, I can't speak for the others, but I would also presume, you know, they didn't wake up on a Sunday afternoon and say, let's twiddle my thumbs, I'm pretty bored, let's book a tube ad. Yeah, I mean, so the, to, to add exactly to your point, Monzo did TV ads for the first time uh, back in June, and they went from an average of 150,000 accounts open a month to 250,000 account opens a month. I think those numbers are right, but I'm sure somebody will write to me if I'm wrong. Um, but exactly to your point, like brand awareness, and particularly if you're trying to, as I'm sure Tide is as well, attract customers from across the broad demographic that the UK has, you're not trying to necessarily just get tube riders who already know what the brands are and know about fintech you've got to go bigger and if you want to go bigger you've got to attract so and, I, and was I, think... in, I was in glasgow for a wedding Ooh. and i spotted starling <gasps> on the buses there Ooh. yeah so i'd be interested to know but who you... else has gone beyond london so yeah. Yeah. Oh, is by the way i have to confess <laughs> <Habito> <laughs> is yes so, they, they are around yeah. in a few cities i think maybe also bristol Mm. So, so I have to confess. So, I mean, the way it's done, right, the offline, uh, so it, it, at the risk of being boring, right, the way you measure the offline is to uptick on your online, right? And so we do the same thing. So we had Manchester and other And what we basically do is we see we're maxing out the digital side. Then we do a test of buses and so on. And we attribute the uplift to the offline campaign, right? And so we actually have been doing this. Glad that we didn't catch it. They were that they were they were in Edinburgh, but you know we definitely did Manchester and I think Bristol and a few other cities, and we're definitely going throughwards, uh, you know, through through that. And the interesting thing is, if you look at um, I'm not sure what Monzo, what you said Monzo is like, but if you look at Tide, 
our distribution of, 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 of members, so SMEs, is actually very much the UK, right? Mm -hmm. So London, Greater London, unfortunately, is, you know, 30, 35%, depending on which KPI you're looking at. Um, however, you know, there, there is this regional spread, and mm -hmm. we have the same issue all over the place, which is essentially prompted awareness of the relevant uh, target group is just too low. Yeah. And it's the difference between, actually, so regional uh, difference is one, but also it's... Um, uh, income or age demographic as well. So if you put a television ad on a Saturday night at nine o'clock, you're going to reach a very different demographic to the tech savvy, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So it's not just necessarily where you are. So, so the people who use Bonzo in Glasgow might well have been the same age bracket and income as people in London, but yeah. it's when their mums and dads start using them, but hitting the nail on the head. I think what's quite interesting is that N26's tube ads have changed over time. So I'm one of those sad people who... For purposes of having inf like photos to put on my website, I take photos. I do that all the, the time. We can be sad together. I do that all the time. So N26 started off with this approach of very much like we're super cool, like we're a cool mm. bank, and that message obviously hasn't worked in it the UK because now they've got no bullshit, wasn't it? That yeah. Was the yeah, one, yeah, and then they also had this like this dude with like his hair like all blown back, like he's been blown by a hair dryer. Was there not a like, sifted article about this? There was about mm. yeah, exactly. If anybody wants to go and find it, there was a fantastic sifted article on N26 his admission that they'd failed to brand correctly in the UK and France. But it comes so, okay, let, me, let, me, let me sort of give them that they're not here. So let me just, so I'm not sure whether N26, we, you know, you could accuse Tide of that. I mean, we don't fundamentally change the brand proposition, but we try different creatives, right? So the first thing we go in and we try to set the uplift and then we actually try to say different types of messages. Um, uh, you know, to, to optimize things. And I think this is partly where, actually within Tide, we have a thing where we don't call, there are certain things that we fail and there are certain things that are learning. Mm -hmm. So we always say, if you test something like that, we would never, ever tell the team this is a failure because we define a certain amount of budget and we say, look, you know, we've tried the best and we, the key thing is we codify the learning. So it's called a learning. A failure is if it's outside test and learn, right? You haven't judged, right, the risks you're taking. That's a failing. And that's, I think, very, very important from the risk-taking of fintechs, where we take risks all the time that people feel comfortable that they are not exposed to being called a failure. So what works? Is it, is it like, boring but factual? Or is it funny? Is it puns? Is so it I can tell you, so for, 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 the, for, the, for the, what I can tell you, so I, I don't know the consumer, so I think that's one of the things that I keep battling with is that people confuse very much the business sector with the personal sector. So business sector is always about being very serious, mm -hmm. right? SMEs in general don't have multiple banking relationships, unlike consumers, where you know, they have the, 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 you know, they open their 20th account. Small businesses don't do that because they don't want to spread their liquidity. They don't want to account for multiple uh, you know, accounts. So it's all about being very serious and, and right. And as far as Tide is concerned, the things, messages we you want to know that we keep iterating around are either do we actually promote a business current account or all the value-added services around it, right? Because that's really the differentiator. And how do you get in different formats that message across? So we would have never had the the crazy guy with the hair, you know, blown back or something. Like that. It's always serious, but that's more the brand promise. I mean, you can probably speak more, Megan, about yeah. you know how how consumer works, right? Yeah. Well, so one thing I was going to comment that's quite interesting is. Having previously been at Starling and watching the growth of the sector from kind of the insider's point of view is that only recently have they started doing these um, tube ads and more traditional forms of advertising. The main driver of growth has been word of mouth recommendations. And I think that's really a testament to the fact that they're really hitting at um, a nerve that really resonates with consumers, like making banking easy, making it easy to sign up and manage your finances, have insights, you know, create savings goals, all these things really do attract new consumers. And increasingly, they're using them as their full bank accounts. And so... 
now they're doing, you know, the full advertising because they've raised these large sums of money, as we've seen. And so it just makes sense that they move into that space as well. But for a long time, a lot of them actually almost um, bragged about the fact that we don't spend any yeah. money on advertising. I remember Which, those I mean, tweets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, they did spend time speaking yeah. at events. So, I mean, depends on how you measure, you know, spending money. So they did invest in getting their brand known. But they haven't done this form of advertising until recently. Yeah, so we have actually a very interesting one on this one. So we, we looked at that, right? And we had survey data where we said, over 50% of Tide's new members come from recommendations, right? And we looked at, like I said, look, why are we spending money on advertising? And she did a very interesting one, which is, you know, for those that are consultants around, you know, and I'm still an old McKinsey at heart. Uh, We actually separated this into active uh, um, recommendations and confirmative recommendations. So a confirmative recommendation is you heard about Tide and you go, look, you also have a business connect. When you with Tide, isn't that a good one? And you have a confirmative. But it, it's not about, you know, you actively going out, oh, yeah, I'm a small business when you all come to Tide. It's really about, I've heard about it. How does it work for you? It's a confirmative one. And for that, you need advertising. And then there's the active recommendation. So where you go, I'm, you know, I'm really someone that's going to go out, spend majority of my day, right, convincing every small business that I work with to come to Tide. We love those members and we do have them, but they're clearly, you know, not the 50% passively. And therefore, the two things don't contradict one another. There is a, a very large pool of recommendations that have to be confirmative because just the nature, especially in the business banking sector, as a small business, you just wouldn't go out, right, and just promote your, your business bank, however supportive you are of them very actively, but you're very happy to give a passive recommendation or confirmative recommendation. This actually works quite well. So I just think this is the industry growing up. Like, I think this is, this is a great sign for fintech in the UK that actually, A, it has the budget to start sort of to your point moving into advertising that is a bit of a dark art you know like you don't you know everybody's very used to uh, performance marketing from a digital perspective going we spent this we got that but actually like you say traditional brands are using it I remember when I was at Lloyd's Banking Group you know TV adverts everything outdoor was considered brand because you just sort of didn't know what the impact really was you know there was that bit at the top of the graph like you say but really you had no idea which bit at the top of the graph given the amount of money that was being spent and I think this is impacted. maybe the difference between I can't speak for all fintechs but I think this is especially for those that are unit economics driven which I think let's say we can safely assume the more mature ones are this is not about you know just f- flakily spending on a brand. Yeah. Everything is measured. I mean, there are clearly some proxies you need to apply to it, uh, and I would, you know, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that's how things things are done, and that's why we see these changes. And I think we should, should celebrate where people actually try different things and learn from them. Because yeah. I think, as you say, that's how you to disrupt the industry. It's not by saying, you know, I have the same brand campaign for 20 years, never measured it, right, and then hope that something sort of worked around it. <laughs> I think many fintechs probably have a much more sophisticated. Mm. Is this sort of the end of the beginning to a certain degree then? Is this finally fintechs growing up and going mainstream? Well, I mean, I don't... Well, I, th- I think it it kind of isn't and it is in the sense that it exactly goes... This is beautifully cyclical. goes back to the first story where that group that have reached maturity are now mature enough to go out and talk to my mums and dads and the grandmas and are going to do that via the tube ads and the magazine ads and the, the television ads. That doesn't mean there isn't another way of coming behind them. No, I actually think it's almost your earlier point. This is really still just the beginning because now they've kind of grown up. They're scaling. They're expanding internationally. And from my experience, when I started in the U.S., I was so surprised because I worked on small business software, right, into it and then zero. And what would work really well in the U.S. would just totally fall flat in the U.K. because you just see different ways that consumers use products, discover products. 
Um, in the U.S., for example, small businesses often want to be, you know, bootstrapping entrepreneurs. And if they can start a business, they can do their accounting in their books as well. But in the U.K., it's very different. Even if you're a small business with just you, you're probably going to rely on your accountant or bookkeeper to, you know, recommend an accounting product to you. And so all of a sudden, that accountant and bookkeeper channel model is the way that you, you know, expand and scale your business here. And so I found it really interesting. So even though here we're seeing, okay, we find what resonates here, we're doing more of this marketing, we're having these learnings, we're expanding in this way. But now as we continue to expand out globally, what works in one market might not necessarily resonate in the same thing in another. So I think we're just actually starting to reach the kind of exciting time where people are, are expanding and trying different techniques. But it comes down to product, right, at the end of the day. And this is kind of we've seen from, you know, the examples that you, you led there. There are the banks or the fintechs that are at maturity that have an, an excellent product that if you get those top of the funnel kind of people who, you know, tube advertising is great. There's long dwell time. I don't want to look at anyone in the eye. I want to look at the advert that's, that's so up there. But, you know, so So English. <laughs> But actually, and you know, Viola Black, hopefully they come out with something amazing that kind of disrupts the industry in another way. But, you know, you look at kind of what happened when they first came out. They did move over Monzo and then everyone went, oh, this is amazing. Oh, wait, I've got to pay 50p if I don't have enough money in my account to withdraw cash. Like this is a paid subscription. And I looked at the graph from some third party data of kind of active users because they were live at the time and it kind of went up and then went down very quickly. So it's about making sure that if you're kind of directing people to that product, you have a mature, sustainable product that can kind of cope with an like influx of people. Yeah. yeah, exactly, because that's the only way you keep them is via an amazing product. So first of all, I'm going to tell my good Italian friend who is hugely <laughs> frustrated coming to England that no girl ever, ever looks at his eyes. <laughs> that it's all, they're all staring at the great Tide apps. Uh, yeah, tide apps. <laughs> um, but I agree. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Clearly, you know, there's no point doing all this marketing, right? If your product isn't ready and you can't operationally handle it. I think that's a very important lesson. And let's be, be, be honest, I think we've all been in situations where we've been overwhelmed with the marketing. And one of the things I think is very fin fintech specific and it made a sort of made the point about us staying at the beginning. And I mean, we are depending on metrics, right, up you know, between 10 and 4x, right, for prior year. And so almost your learnings from prior year are of, of learnings of sort, right? But, you know, you can't really predict. And so that's actually one of the things of actually that we, we keep, you know, looking at all of these campaigns. How can we keep some extra capacity? How can we protect ourselves for the scenario? Because one of the things that is, in addition to tracking being much more much harder offline is, of course, offline is out there. So switching it off is very hard, right? Online, you just say, bloody hell, right? Just, just take down the thing, right? We're just being run over by, you know, uh, you know a great but you know, great, we, we, you know, great bunch of members, but, you know, there are just a lot of them coming, right? So you can just say, tune down the, the, on, uh, the digital advertising. That, of course, once you're out on the, on the you know, on, on, on offline, that doesn't happen. I mean, they keep coming and you need to be able to handle that, uh, both operationally as well as your Product. Very, very true. Well, we will see if this is the beginning of the beginning or the end of the beginning. I don't know. <laughs> it's start, start there's a beginning somewhere. It is. Somewhere. Yeah. You mean the end of the beginning as in the sense we're going to go back to the branch-based business? Maybe. You never know. Like, I don't know this out. First digital only bank to no, that open would be up great branches. Right? <laughs> all right. On that note, we probably want to wrap up this show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more, Amy? About Sifted. I mean, sure. Whatever you want, really. Head to www.sifted.eu and sign up to my newsletter, which comes out three times a week for fun startup news and opinions from across Europe. Not just fintech, all of the tech. 
I would, brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. We subscribe in the office and we all love it. I would highly recommend it. Uh, Megan, where can people find out more about you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Megan Kaywood. Also, I work for a company called Barclays. Barclays.com for those of you who are large. Is that a large fintech? Is yeah, it? it's a large fintech. <laughs> Some say it's the largest and oldest fintech in England. Um, you can find us on high streets near you and online as well and um, in the app store. So, very exciting. Very, very good. Uh, James, where can people find out more about you and Button? Uh, if you want to find out more about Button, we're at www.usebutton.com still trying to buy the button domain um, <laughs> if you want to find out a bit more about me and you enjoy ramblings about cricket and fintech it's, and fairies uh, and fairies so much fairy <laughs> chat going on uh, it's at James Teodorini check the spelling on the notes because it's very difficult and then at button on Twitter for any button updates very good Oliver where can people find out more about so, you so uh, Tide is on Tide.co and into all the app stores um, if you really want to listen to my ramblings on uh, on LinkedIn, I'm actually much more LinkedIn than Twitter. So Oliver Prill on um, on Twitter. There's a f- funny bit of bit bit of being Doctor Oliver Prill. So there's another Oliver Prill that is actually quite hostile to uh, to fintechs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't connect to him. Um, you know, do connect to me. Um, uh, but if you want my ramblings from time to time, you can find me there. Very good. Uh, I want to connect to both of them. <laughs> Sarah, how about you? Well, if you want to know more about InsureTech, you can go and find our sister podcast at Instech Insider or InsureTech Insider on the, on wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm not, I'm not platform biased. Um, if you want to hear from more about me, I've been ranting a lot about e-scooters lately. Mm. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Very good. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter over at David Breer. What do you think of today's show? If you liked it, leave us a review over on uh, iTunes. If you didn't, well, don't. And I don't care, really. Uh, you don't have to listen again. We won't make you. Yeah, I mean, we can't force you, really, can we? Can we? <laughs> no. Can we? we can't force them, no. no, no. Okay. You've tried. But... Did we ask Naz if we can force them? We will go and ask Naz, but I'm fairly sure he's going to say no. Let's check that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can find us over on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and social, 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 uh, on Fintech Insider in various different places. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.